Um, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verses 18. Uh, last week we went through uh, Jesus' genealogy, going through verses 1 through 17, um, talking about some of his grandmothers. And this week we're going to talk about uh, his dad. And reason being uh, that I kind of felt this kind of on my heart is that it seems like Jesus and Mary get all the attention, and rightfully so. I mean, it's about his birthday, and um, she gave birth to him. But I kind of wanted to take a little spin from it. But before we delve into that, do any of you feel the pressures of the holidays? Anybody? Like, is it just getting more? I'm feeling them. The stress of Christmas... And with all the shopping, in my family, it's, it's the debate of do we take part in the consumerism or not? And we have two kids. And uh, how much do we spend on our families, which is just growing? Um, on my side, just my mom's side, there's over 50 people. And, so do we, and then do we buy fair trade products or do we support our local stores? And, and the decorating, do we get a, a tree? And if we get a tree, is it fake or is it a real one? And do we replace the old lights with LED lights or... and um, and then the family, do we go with your side or my side? And if we go my side, do we fly or do we drive? Stressful. So you think and you're thinking, isn't this supposed to be like the season of peace on earth and goodwill toward men? And instead it's like war at the lines of the cash register and malice towards everyone in front of you. And, and then silent night. Yeah, right. Silent night. And you. If you believe in a silent night, you've never been to one of my family's gatherings. They're, they're crazy. They're just crazy. And we've got like 50 people all speaking Chinese in there. And, and if you've ever heard us talking before, you'd think we were fighting. But we're really not. We're, we're, that's just the way we talk, right? And um, so, and then the mahjong is being played and all the little domino things and people playing poker and feel my family members are drunk and they're especially loud. It's not silent. It's not holy. Um, I love them. I love them. And I, I actually love being around them because I'm the only Jesus that they know, and my, and my wife. And um, some, of, some of our Christmases are just stressful, and sometimes mine is. But let's think about the first Christmas and the stresses involved there. The stresses involved in the first Christmas weren't because it was a holiday, uh, but because it was an upcoming wedding day for Joseph and Mary. And, and many of us know how smooth and easy and relaxing wedding planning is, right? It's just so easy. Like, like cake. And some of you have been through this recently, and there are some of you that are going through it now. It's so stress-free, isn't it? Not a worry in the world. It's like being on an extended vacation without any limitations of finances or limitations of time. And, and you know what amazes me? I am amazed at the number of magazines there are for future brides. That is amazing. And, and some engaged folks and others nowhere close to being engaged, but you, you love to look at them anyway. And I, I remember in college going to friends' dorms rooms or, or uh, apartments and seeing just stacks of bridal magazines. And they weren't even dating anyone. This is stacks of, let's see, there's Modern Bride. I remember that one very well because it's very popular. I see that all the time. The, the, there's Brides, there's Elegant Bride, there's Bridal Guide, Weddings, Martha Stewart Weddings, Today's Bride, World Bride Magazine, Wedding Cakes, Weddings Unveiled, Something Blue, Book Moda Sposa, Vogue Sposa, Modern Wedding Flowers, You and Your Wedding, British Brides and Setting Up Home, Asiana Wedding Magazine, Asian Bride, Colleziona Sposa, Sherry Moda, La Sposa, Studio Brides, White Sposa, there's actually more. And there are a few groom magazines, 
But go to a magazine rack and it's just, it's so minuscule, right? Compared to, to what the brides have. And let's, let's be frank about something. Aside from the groom's mom, no one cares what the groom looks like. Right? No one cares. No one ever says, look at that tuxedo. It's gorgeous on him. Right? It makes, it makes the colors of his eyes pop. Look at the, his shoes. Stunning. Stunning. Look at the cufflinks. So sparkly and shiny. They're to die for. Those things are to die for. Now, now back to Joseph. You think about the stress that was on this groom. This groom was under a lot of stress. And some of us think mostly about Mary and Joseph during Christmas, but not so much about Joseph, even though Joseph paid a really huge price that first Christmas. A price some of us may have never thought about before. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And a little history about what God was doing, the sacrifice of Jesus, and, and what Christmas is all about. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. No angel came to Joseph yet, but he knows that she's pregnant. And But while he, he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. I want to start with a single word because it's pivotal to this entire message. When Matthew says that Joseph was a just man, the phrase was a technical expression. The Gospel of Matthew was written with a Jewish flavor, and there's a logical transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so we must consider this just man description in Hebrew. And in, in Hebrew, it was a single word. The word was tzaddik. And you look up just man in the Bible and you'll see that this word was used to describe Noah. It's used in the Proverbs. It's used in Ecclesiastes. And being a Sadiq meant that Joseph deeply respected the book of the law and that he was known for his unwavering obedience to the Torah. And whatever the Torah instructed for his life, he did that. He did it without compromise. He did it without flinching. And he didn't keep the carpentry shop open on Sabbath, right? He didn't eat unclean foods. He didn't mix with the wrong kind of people. He did what other good Jewish just men did. He was a tzaddik. He lived as one. And that's who he was. And everyone in this small village probably knew this about him. No one invited Jesus, Jesus over for breakfast with, uh, with some bacon and, or some clam chowder for lunch. He was a, he was a good Jewish man, he, and he was an aspired man um, uh, in that culture. And it's the same for us in our culture, right? An athlete. An athlete isn't happy just sitting on the bench, are they? Right? He, he wants to win championships. A, a business person isn't happy with just getting a job, right? She, she wants to bring the company to new heights. She wants to bring it to extra profitability. And just like a Stanford grad wishes that they had gone to Cal, right? So an and, and Israelite wanted to be a tzaddik. 
right? And then, then he would be looked up to, he would be honored, admired, revered, respected. And in that culture, a tzaddik was somebody. That was somebody. That's something to keep in mind about Joseph. However, Joseph was a tzaddik with a really serious problem. He, he was engaged to Mary, his fiancée. She was pregnant. He wasn't the father. And this was a big no-no for anyone, let alone a tzaddik. And not only that, but a tzaddik in a little village. Not only is that not acceptable, but you can't hide it. It's a small village. And the Torah is very clear about what to do in a situation like this. This is a very serious set of circumstances, and the instructions are plain as day as to what to do. But keep in mind that Joseph's reputation, his name, his status, his identity revolves around one thing. That he does what the Torah instructs him to do. And now he finds that the woman woman he's pledged to be married to has apparently been sexually unfaithful. He knows that in the book of Deuteronomy it covers such a violation. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 21. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Joseph knew the Torah. He knew the laws dealing with a betrothed woman who is found not to be a virgin. And Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then the law of Deuteronomy tells us that what happens with betrothed women, betrothed women in various types of situations. Verse 23 of chapter 22. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, if this was the case, Mary still dies. And then there's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 25 to 26. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lays with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. Hey, now there's an idea, Mary. Here's a way out of this whole mess for us. You can conjure up a story, Joseph and Mary, we can conjure up a story, this whole story about how you were raped in the countryside and, and then we're all good. No one has to die and, and Joseph doesn't have to lose his status as a sadiq. But this is dishonest. And Joseph, being righteous and a just man, he can't do this. And Joseph is confronted with what seems to be crystal clear since Mary is not saying that she's raped as to what he has to do. And Joseph's understanding of righteousness, his reputation, his name, his identity as a tzaddik were all on the line. Everyone in the village thought they knew what he was going to do. It, it seemed pretty evident what he was going to do. And all his fellow tzaddiks would remind him that, hey man, this is a sin, right? It has to be dealt with publicly and, and Mary has to be punished for this. And then the story takes a strange turn. Verse 19, Matthew chapter 1. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Being a just man, he wanted to avoid scandal. 
The world biblical commentary suggests that the best translation of this verse is probably this. Although he was a righteous man, in spite of the fact that he was a tzaddik, he didn't want a scandal. Do you feel the tension going on in this story? And under the old system of the law, righteousness demanded that Mary be exposed to shame, that the sinner would be kicked to the curb. Under the old system of the law, the righteous and the just had to separate themselves from the sin and the sinners. And standards had to be maintained, and the two couldn't mix with each other. And under the circumstances, just men wouldn't have hesitated. But Joseph hesitated. It makes you wonder why he couldn't bring himself to say the words to separate himself from Mary. He couldn't bring himself to lead the procession to her father's house for her to be humiliated and killed. He couldn't bring himself to go, to, go public with this situation. Can you see the anguish that was going on in that day inside of Joseph and in this story? And by the time the angel comes to Joseph, he's struggled with this for some time now. Verse 20 tells us, but while he thought about these things, we don't know exactly how long he thought about these things, but Joseph already knows that Mary is pregnant and is spending some time thinking about this. He doesn't just storm out with Mary in tow to publicly shame her, throw her down, say she, some, she slept with somebody and it wasn't me. And have you ever wondered who told Joseph that Mary was pregnant? Most likely Mary, who, according to most New Testament scholars, was probably between 12 and 14 years old. Can you imagine that conversation? Try putting yourself in Joseph's position. You're between 18 and 20 years old. You're engaged and, and your 12 to 14 year old fiance comes to you one day and says, Joseph, I have something to tell you that is both um, good and bad. What do you want to hear first? Bad? I'm pregnant. What can possibly be good? I'm still a virgin. What? We don't have biology classes, but I, I think I understand how this stuff works. And it doesn't make sense. And then Mary goes on about how an angel came to her and told her, according to Luke chapter, chapter 1, verses 28 through 33, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. You do recall that this is a junior high girl from a little-known village, right? And the angel continues on and tells her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And after hearing this, she, she's going to relay this message to Joseph. Can you picture how he, she must have just protested with Joseph about her innocence? And can you imagine Joseph's struggle and believing her story? He must be struggling at how, how did my parents get me into this mess? How, how did they dupe me into this? How did her parents and my parents come to arrange for this marriage? Why, why would my parents do this to me? How, how could I be so stupid to cons consent to this? I'm, I'm, I was duped believing that this was a genuinely decent woman that I was going to marry. A betrothal typically lasted a year. It meant that the bride and groom were officially pledged to one another, but that the marriage wasn't consummated. So any advances from either party was considered adultery. For, for a betrothal to be official, two witnesses needed to be present, and normally there would be a mutual consent from the parties, and then there had to be a groom's declaration to make it uh, to establish a Jewish betrothal. And after this whole process, 
she comes up with this crazy story that she actually believes to be true. And she expects me, Joseph, a tzaddik who knows the Torah really well, to believe this? Is she insane? She's gone mad. Come on, come up with a better story than that, right? An angel came to you, junior high school girl in an insignificant ho-dunk town in the middle of nowhere far away from the Jewish center of, of, of civilization. And, and keep in mind that like most other Jews, Joseph probably believed that the Messiah was going to come deliver them from the Romans, that the Messiah was going to topple Rome. So, so to come from the sticks, he was probably thinking that the Messiah was going to come from a place of influence like Jerusalem or like Rome, not a place without any traffic lights. So, so Joseph decides to divorce her. And betrothal in those days to a Palestinian Jew was, was a legal step and required something similar to a divorce to be ended. He decided to divorce her, but he, he wants to do it quietly. Joseph, Joseph's not a jerk, right? He, he didn't want to publicly humiliate her and shame her. He wanted to minimize her suffering and still keep his status as a tzaddik. And can you sense the anxiety going on? The conflict and the battle within Joseph's mind, his heart, his emotions, his spirit. And here's a woman he loves and he wants to be compassionate towards her. But, but he also knows that, that the law says this. And he's a just man who understands what to do to carry out the law. And then Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Why does the angel tell Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife? Why would the angel address fear and, and tell him not to be afraid? Probably because that's precisely what Joseph was feeling. Fear. He was a tzaddik, a righteous man, a just man. Joseph was afraid of offending God. He was afraid of disobeying Torah. And like any man, he was afraid of what would happen to his reputation. What others would think of him. Joseph was afraid of, of his status being lost, uh, which took him a lifetime to make. It took him a lifetime to construct. And, and it would all come tumbling down if he took Mary as his wife. And Joseph had his doubts about Mary when she came to him and told him the story about the angel. He must have been thinking, no one's going to believe an angel came to us in this insignificant village and, and impregnated a virgin junior high girl. They're going to think we're stupid. And for even trying to tell that story, the village will think what all people do when a pregnant junior high girl gets pregnant. And if they told this story, even though it's a true story, Joseph doesn't see how anyone is going to accept his account of what happened. He's not going to be able to conduct business with them again. He's going to be hurting financially with a new baby. He's going to be an outcast. They're, they're not going to be invited over to other Sadiq's homes anymore. People will never regard him as a devout follower of the Torah. He will lose all respect, all admiration. Joseph would be committing social suicide. It would be easier for him to have a life on this earth to just divorce her quietly. Move on. If Joseph commits himself to this baby Jesus and his wife Mary, he will be committing social suicide. And Jesus and Mary are, they're already in the hole. Women, women pregnant with children during betrothal, you're not getting out of the hole. And it's not, it's not, and you're, and you're betrothed. I mean, forget about it. You're up the creek. 
Mary has already decided, right? She's decided, I'm keeping this baby. I'm, I'm the favored one. God, God called me to do this. And now it's Joseph's turn. The rest of his life is at stake. And the reputation it took him a lifetime to make, a time that is supposed to be joyful in his wedding planning, his livelihood, his, his vocational success, his standing in the village, will all be sacrificed if he decides to commit to be a husband to Mary and a father to Jesus. In verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Notice the two things Joseph does in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, he takes Mary to be his wife. He takes her home. And that was a legal step. And in that day, it meant that Joseph completed the wedding ceremony and publicly claimed her as his wife. And that's what it means when it says that he took to him his wife. And the second thing Joseph does in verse 25, he called his name Jesus. Joseph names the baby. And this is another legal action. He is publicly claiming the adoption of this child as his own. And he does two very significant things. First thing he does is he takes Mary home. The second thing he does is he gives the baby a name. And Joseph has now officially, legally, deliberately tied his destiny to the lives of two very stained, very trashed reputations in Mary and Joseph. When he had a clean one before. He has made a decision that, that will baffle anyone who understands the implications of his decision. He did something that a Sadiq never did. He married a woman carrying another's baby while betrothed. She wasn't raped. She, was, she has the story of an angel impregnating her. His days as a Sadiq are over. Whatever the future holds for Joseph, it, it's never going to be one of respectability. He will never be regarded as a moral person. He will never be admired as a decent man. I want to show you how faithful Joseph is about what God is doing. Jesus was part of a larger family, and he had many brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judah, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? We're told the names of his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Now keep in mind that, that we've translated these names to English from the Greek versions of their names. But do you know what their names are in Hebrew? They are the same names of some of Israel's most prominent and famous patriarchs. Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simeon. Many New Testament scholars think that Joseph and Mary gave their sons these specific names because they believe that through their, their firstborn son, Jesus, God was going to renew his people once again. They, they believe that God, through their son, Jesus, was going to conclusively fulfill his dream of, of the creation of a redeemed community. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we see a part of the sacrifice that Joseph made. It's an interesting scene set in Jesus' hometown where, where the people of his hometown are, are really skeptical of him. They don't think much about Jesus. They don't think much about his family, his claims, his teachings, his miracles. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? It's a slam. 
and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are, are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And in this Palestinian Jewish culture of the day, no one would ever refer to a man in this way. A man would be referred to as the son of his father. So Jesus would have been known as Jesus, the son of Joseph, or Jesus bar Joseph. Even if Joseph was no longer alive, a man would be referred to in this way. And it's interesting that they don't refer to Jesus in this way. To refer to a man as the son of only of the, of the mother, that was an insult. Something like what is said in our culture when somebody calls somebody else son of a blank. It was a crude, it's insulting. It's, it's an insulting thing to say towards someone's mother. It was disrespectful for the father, father not to acknowledge him. It was a harsh way of talking about the condition of the birth of that person. Mark chapter 6 verse 3 helps us see that what happened in that village decades earlier, 30 years ago, continued to haunt Joseph's family. Joseph's reputation was still in shambles from his marriage to Mary, and there was a likelihood that Joseph wasn't even alive anymore. That, that shattered image, that shattered reputation went with him to his grave. And Mary and Joseph knew the depth of, of why G Joseph did what he did, the depth of love that Joseph had for Mary and Jesus. And maybe God decided that Jesus, who would later be called a friend of sinners, should be raised in a family that knew firsthand what it felt like to be regarded as an outcast, to be regarded as a second-class citizen on earth, to be severely disrespected throughout life, from birth to death, by the so-called religious right, by the so-called religious elite. And can you imagine how it was for Jesus as he grew up? People talking about him, talking about his mom, talking about his family and his dad, behind their back sometimes, but sometimes probably right in front of their face in the marketplace. And some of you may, may be wondering, how in the world can something like that, like a story like that, be even kept alive? You know, you would think that people would have moved on by now, yeah, 30 years ago, come on. But stories in small villages, those stories last generations. You know, my grandfather was the first person in his village to go to college. Not just any college, but Beijing University, the most prestigious school in China. And I went to vi visit that village six years ago. And when they found out that I was the grandson of my grandfather, they were so proud. And they toured me all around the village, all like 100 square feet of it. And it wasn't all that large. They, they told me about my grandfather's primary school. They said, your, your grandfather was in that classroom. He played right here. And, and they told me about where he played and, and the, his swimming hole and what he did and where he was farming and, and the very house that he was born in, still there. It was kind of like a shrine. They kept it. They're like, this is where your grandfather was born. This is where he was raised. So proud. And if you wonder whether those kinds of stories can survive that long in a village, they do. If my grandfather were still alive today, he'd be over 100 years old. So that, that, that was over 80 years ago that he went to school. And perhaps the reason why Jesus had such a heart for unrespectable people is that he was such a person. He was a disrespected person. He was raised in a family that lost its respectability a long time ago because of his mom's pregnancy with him. And maybe a reason that Jesus was so compassionate towards women who were full of scandal was because he knew firsthand what it meant to his mom that his father, Joseph, 
had stuck by her when she was single and pregnant and all the righteous and just folks, all the tzaddiks, would have picked up a stone wanting to kill her. And remember that story in John chapter 8 about a woman caught in adultery? She was tried, condemned, and sentenced really fast so that they could test Jesus. She was surrounded by a group of scribes and Pharisees, the righteous and just men of that time. John chapter 8 verse 4 says, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And then there's a really significant phrase in the following verse, something that would have been said to a tzaddik. Verse 5, chapter 8 of John. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? So in other words, Jesus, you're supposed to be a tzaddik. What do you say we do in a situation like this? And then John tells us that Jesus bends down and he writes on the ground. Verse 6, this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse of him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And for over 2,000 years, people have been wondering what Jesus was writing on the ground. People have made suggestions as to what he wrote. Some think he was writing off the Ten Commandments. Some guess that he was writing different laws that the different accusers in that circles had violated, perhaps being adulterers themselves and then writing their names next to it. It's, it's one of those questions I, I want to ask Jesus when I'm, when I'm in heaven, face to face with him. What, what did you write? Like, well, what did you write? Right? But maybe, just maybe, it's a possibility that no one really knows, but maybe, maybe he wrote a single word. And, and what he wrote in the dust on the ground was, was mom. He just wrote mom. And maybe in that moment, Jesus thought of a frightened junior high school aged pregnant girl in an obscure village enveloped by disgrace, just totally filled with scandal. And remembering that during that time, that was a really scary time for Mary, stood a strong young tzaddik named Joseph who gave up everything to stand by his mom. And Joseph was a good man. Joseph was a loving man. John chapter 8, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, maybe writing mom again or something regarding it. Who knows? But whatever it was, the men who were ready to kill this woman, one by one, left her alone. And Jesus is left alone with that woman. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. He had loved her. He had protected her when all the just and righteous people were ready to stone her. Like father, like son. Joseph was a good man. Joseph was a loving man. And what if what if regeneration was known to stand up for those who were unrespectable? Those who, who can't defend themselves, the outcasts of society. Wouldn't it be great if, if word on the street uh, was that no matter what you've done or how badly you've messed up, this is a community that won't stone you. Now, now we have to be wise and we have to practice discernment with, with each person that comes in and their stories and see how they match up and, and, and kind of see where their hearts are at. But to know that you'll get more than a fair shake when you come in through these doors. What if what if what happened in Joseph's day, what happened in Jesus' day, happened again here? As Joseph stood by Mary's side, as, as Jesus stood by this adulterous side. It doesn't matter whether somebody is homeless or filthy rich, what education someone has, what color they are, or how they're dressed. 
What if word started to spread all over Oakland and the Bay Area among among addicts, among atheists, people who have diseases because of lifestyle choices that they made, divorcees, sexually confused people, that there is a place here on East 15th and 3rd Avenue where where you just get loved and and they try their hardest not to hurt you. We make mistakes, but we, we, we really try really hard not to hurt you. And who is God calling us to love here? Who is God calling you personally, you to love? Where, where is God opening doors for you to love people? Where are the opportunity he, opportunities he's made for you? It doesn't have to be something big or, or massive. Just make it small. Make it one individual. But keep in mind that one of the characteristics of Jesus love is that he usually extends it to people who are more challenging to love. Matthew chapter five, verse 46. For if you love those who love you. What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Criminals love people who love them too, right? Immature people are capable of that. One of the most valuable things you can ask for for Christmas, if, if you want to grow spiritually, one of the most significant things, significant gifts you can ask for is a difficult person in your life. And how many of you have difficult people in your life? And for those of you that don't have your hand up, I'm assuming that the person's here, so it's okay. And, and if, if you don't have such a person, regeneration has a list that we can assign someone to you. We can give that gift to you. And if regeneration runs out, I personally, I have a list that I can give to you. I, I have an investment portfolio of difficult people. Right? Now, now, I mention this because... There's a pretty good chance that over the next several days, you're going to be sitting around a table somewhere celebrating the holidays and there's going to be someone difficult sitting with you. And one of the things you can do is chuck a stone at that person. They may even deserve it. Many people do. And that's why family functions are so entertaining. And and sadly enough, a lot of churches have very talented stone throwing teams. We can be guilty of passing judgment if we if we choose to go that route. I'm sure we can all justify our condemnation. Or we can hear God's invitation to love the unlovable and remember the love that came our way while we weren't deserving. And we can pass that love along. And God invites us to love the unlovable. And Jesus grew up embracing people like this, loving people that nobody else does. And people looked at Jesus and said, you think that you're a just and righteous man? People regard you as a tzaddik. You're a friend of sinners. You embrace people that no tzaddik ever would. But Jesus came to teach about another kind of righteousness, one that is better, one that is a deeper kind of righteousness. Can you understand Jesus' life a little bit more considering his background, his upbringing? We just finished the Sermon on the Mount not too long ago. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Matthew writes, For I say to you that unless your righteousness your tzaddikness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And people wondered, what kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about? Jesus knew about that righteousness firsthand because his earthly father was an example of such a man. I mean, granted, also he was God incarnate, but he had a good example in his earthly dad. And anybody who wants to be... uh, can be part of that righteousness because God, God in a manger, was starting a new kind of community. God wanted a new kind of sadiqness that 
is available to us, not because we, we can earn it through hard work, not because we want to impress others with how spiritually we are, spiritual we are or how good we are, but by faith as a gift from Jesus who generously gives to us. And this is a gift given to anyone who humbly approaches the manger and commits to Jesus what Joseph committed, his life. Joseph gave up everything to be with Jesus. He declared his allegiance to Jesus. His life was tied to his. There was no, nothing else he could do after he decided that. You have the opportunity, if you've never done so, to do that. To approach Jesus and to give your life to him. And if you already have given your life to him, you have the opportunity to extend the invitation, especially to those who are more challenging for you to love. That you can show them that Jesus in a manger overcame anything that they're going through. And that's Christmas. His birth, allowing for us to have a new community, a new redemptive community where we can have fellowship with God, that we are cleansed of our sins so that we can have communion with the Holy God, relationship, fellowship with the Holy God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your birth. Um, such a tough route. Not, not just for you, but the people you involved in, and we see the, the depth of sacrifice that your earthly mother Mary made, that your earthly father Joseph made. We see the, the intricate plans of, of our Heavenly Father and how he just kind of uh, laid down all those plans supernaturally and miraculously. Lord, I, I ask God that you would equip us during this Christmas season that we would be able to love the unlovable, that we would be able to love those who are challenging for us to love. I ask God that they would be able to see something in us that uh, is different, that is accepting. And not that we accept sin, not that we accept uh, uh, choices that are, are contrary, but God, that we, we love people. And regardless of, of what they're doing, that, that they can see something deeper, and that you, God, can cleanse them and deliver them from any problem that they're going through. In Jesus' name.